Welcome to Pregnancy Help Podcast. Our sponsor for this episode is the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. Through Option Line's 24-7 contact center, they answer more than 150 mission-critical calls each month from women who regret their abortion decision. Statistics show that more than 2,500 lives have been saved through the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. Visit aprnworldwide.com to learn more. Hey, thanks, Christine. This is Betty McDowell, Vice President of Ministry Services here at Heartbeat International. And today I am joined by Dr. Brent Bowles, who is Heartbeat International's Medical Director of APRN, which is the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. And Dr. Christina Francis from the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetrics and Gynecologists, often referred to as APLOG. We're gonna be talking about the abortion pill reversal um, and the science behind it, which was recently highlighted in a study done by Dr. Krynan. Uh, but first, as we get going, I thought you might like to know a little bit about our guest today, which is pretty cool that we get to have two of them, two doctors, two abortion pill reversal doctors uh, with us today. So I'm going to start first by asking you, Dr. Francis, to tell us a little bit of your story. Perhaps tell us, share with us a little bit about why you chose medicine and how that really converges with your pro-life conviction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Betty, for um, having me on today. It's a joy to be with you and, and to be with Dr. Bowles, who is a, a, uh, an APLOG member and a friend and has been an inspiration to me. So it's, it's wonderful to be with all of you today. Um, I am, I practice in Indiana and, uh, I am proud to be an OBGYN. I'm so happy with the decision that I made to do OB, uh, when I was in medical school, can't imagine doing another specialty. And, you know, I think what drew me to medicine, uh, first and foremost was that, uh, through high school and then college, I really enjoyed science, but I knew that I didn't want to be in a lab or, um, you know, something like that. I really enjoy people as well. And, and I was raised in, um, at an inner city ministry actually, where my parents, um, served and, and led the ministry. And so really had instilled in me from a young age, uh, the importance of helping others and, um, serving others. And so medicine for me just seemed like a great combination of those two things of combining science with service. And so that's what led me to medicine and actually initially started out with the goal of doing long-term overseas medical missions. I thought that's what I'd be doing for the rest of my life and, uh, and did that actually out of residency. Um, but then during the time that I was back here in the States, I, I served for a total of three years in Kenya at a mission hospital there. And, and that's where I was planning on practicing for the rest of my life until the Lord had other plans. And, um, when I was back in the States for a time, uh, was challenged by a very dear friend to do more, uh, in the fight against abortion and really kind of realized during that time through a lot of soul searching and educating myself that, you know, abortion really is the greatest injustice of our time. And, um, that as an OBGYN, I perhaps was uniquely positioned, um, to have a voice in this issue. And so, um, really was challenged in that and decided to move back to the States from Kenya in order to become more involved with 
with pro-life issues and, and with helping support our patients um, as they face very difficult decisions sometimes. So, so that's what drew me to medicine and then, you know, and to OB as well. Uh, you know, I think, I don't, I don't know what drew Dr. Bowles to the practice of OB, but for me, it was experiencing a delivery for the first time as a medical student that I just couldn't believe the miracle that I was seeing in front of me. And that's really what drew me to OB. So yeah, so that's my story. Uh, that's great. That's great. I love that you have that uh, background because here you are with Heartbeat International. So you have an international background. So yeah. we can appreciate that about you. And um was just thinking about how at Heartbeat, um, Dr. Bowles is actually an answer to prayer for us. Mm -hmm. We had really been contemplating what do we need? How do we move forward? How do we build uh, even more upon the foundation that was laid on abortion pill reversal? And uh, really, it was a God that brought us uh, to him. And so he really is an answer to prayer. And I really know for you, Francis, because we are fans of that blog. Uh, mm -hmm. We've known your previous president, Dr. Donna Harrison, good friends with her. She's a wonderful person, right? And so, I believe you must have been an answer to prayer um, as you have leadership in that organization. So oh, we're grateful for that. All right, Dr. Bowles, our answer to prayer. How about if you share a little bit with us about your story, uh, stepping into medicine and uh, as an OB-GYN and, and your pro-life conviction as well? Well, I did not always know that I wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology. In fact, when you are in your first semester of medical school and you're meeting so many new people, you know, the first three questions, you know, that you either answer or you ask are, what's your name? Where are you from? And what do you want to do? You know, people will say cardiology or general surgery or pediatrics. And I usually answered that question by saying, probably general surgery, maybe cardiology, but I know I don't want to be a gynecologist. <laughs> There's a lot of laughter going on here, but we're mute. We're trying to mute, but that was good. <laughs> I don't know how many times I said that, but it was true at that point. But by the end of the first year of medical school with the embryology class under my belt, which I found fascinating, and physiology, especially the female reproductive physiology, I started looking at it in a different way. And I started thinking about the things that an OBGYN gets to do. And from a personality standpoint, I'm not wired to deal with death and dying and chronic disease management and those kinds of things all the time. Obstetrics and gynecology, you know, other medical specialties, they're very necessary. There are great people who love what they do. I don't like chronic problem management. I like fixing things. And I realized that the vast majority of the problems that you see in both obstetrics and gynecology either have a solution with using medication or surgery or a combination. And there are very few things that you can't fix. And that just to me was much more appealing as was the appeal of getting to know young, healthy couples who were just excited and you would see them you know, many times over the course of a pregnancy and get to be there with them at an exciting time in their life. And I just realized that that's really probably what I want to do. Then I did my general surgery rotation and I really liked that. But then obstetrics and gynecology came after that. And from the moment I did the first delivery, I never looked back. Um, that was 
that will be 31 years ago in January uh, for the first baby that I delivered. And uh, don't remember their name. I don't remember their gender. But I remember how amazing that was. And it's still amazing. I did um, three deliveries in the last 24 hours. And they were all amazing 31 years later. So I know I'm doing the right thing. I know it's what I was designed to do. As a young person, where I grew up in a rural area, I was very sheltered from the reality of abortion. I didn't even really much know what it was until I was almost finished with high school. And then college was so busy and medical school was so busy. And at that time, medical schools weren't really focusing on abortion training. I, really wasn't even discussed in any of the classes I had uh, in 1988 and 89 in the first two years of basic sciences. But once I was in my residency and we had to interact with some attend GYN attendings who both did private GYN with our program, but also worked at the abortion clinic they owned. And as residents covering the emergency room, seeing the complications coming in, the, the reality of what abortion was and what it did really began to hit me then uh, when I was a resident. And that's when I really began thinking a lot about it. Um, my first several years in practice were in a very small town. There was a small pregnancy center there, but it wasn't very busy. And I didn't really have a lot of opportunity to do much where I was, but 16 years ago, when I moved to Middle Tennessee, uh, there was a pregnancy center there, which I ended up being the director for for the last 13 years. And just because of introductions to different people, I got plugged into relationships with different legislators who wanted OBGYN, pro-life OBGYNs to help them craft legislation. And it just, it took off from there. And uh, that's even though I'm no longer in Tennessee and I'm now living in Florida, I'm still, you know, very much involved and uh, I'm very glad to be. Well, thank you. Thank you both for saying yes. Uh, yes to God in your medicine, um, in, in choosing medicine and in serving the way you are. So now we want to talk about uh, abortion pill reversal, but I think that it would be beneficial for our listening audience to understand uh, what we talk about chemical abortion. So sometimes it's been referred to as medication abortion or medical abortion. Uh, we refer to it mostly here as chemical abortion. And so I'm thinking maybe Dr. Francis, if you wouldn't mind starting us out by just explaining uh, briefly when someone talks about chemical abortion, what that is. And then from there, we can move on to understanding the reversal of that. Absolutely. So I do think that's an important conversation to have because a lot of people, when they hear chemical abortion or medication abortion, they think of a lot of different things. So I've had people say, well, isn't that the same thing as plan B or isn't that the same thing as the morning after pill? And, and it's actually something very specific. So it's important for people to understand that when we talk about chemical abortion, we're talking about a very specific two drug regimen that is used. Um, for the, the vast majority, if not all of chemical abortions here in the U S. And so the first medication that women are given 
um, is known by several different names. The generic name for it is mifepristone. People may have heard of it referred to as RU486 or mifeprex. And um, that medication actually uh, binds to receptors in the woman's um, uterus and in her ovaries uh, that are meant for progesterone, which is a, a key hormone in early pregnancy that a woman's body produces to help sustain that, that uh, early human being. And so the mifeprex binds to those receptors and essentially just blocks progesterone's ability to do what it needs to do. And then 24 to 48 hours later, the woman takes a medication called misoprostol. And uh, what that does is it induces contractions of the uterus. And so it, then it leads to um, the woman's body expelling that preborn child. Um, and so it's these two uh, medications that are, that are given to women again, primarily for chemical abortions in this or in this country, it's the ones that we primarily use um, for chemical abortions. And so, and we know that these are increasing in frequency uh, in this country. So especially, you know, this year, or when we looked at last year's data, all the reports that are coming out this year uh, for abortion numbers in the U.S., um, we now see that the majority of chemical, or I'm sorry, the ab majority of abortions that are done in this country are actually done via chemical abortion as opposed to surgical abortion. So this is a very important issue to understand, and it's something that's becoming more and more common. That's something that we have definitely seen on the rise. It's something we've been watching and, and really trying to prepare pregnancy centers to have the background, have the understanding of it. Um, as you talk about chemical abortion, um, I know the FDA says 10 to 12 weeks, I believe, is, is where they have approved of uh, the use of chemical abortion, um, I think that we have heard certainly stories of it being used beyond that. Um, so is that, is that correct? You want to address that? And then we'll move on to Dr. Bowles and let him explain the reversal part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when the FDA originally approved mifepristone, which was in 2000, it was approved through seven weeks gestation. Um, and the reason for that actually was because if you look at the data, even from the manufacturer, when they were developing the drug and they were looking at adverse events and things like that, at about eight weeks, you start to see that complication curve start to increase pretty significantly. And so it was approved through seven weeks gestation. Then in 2016, um, the FDA went back and uh, reviewed uh, its approval of Mifeprex and actually did something quite dangerous, um, certainly for preborn children, but also for women. They extended the, the approval of its use from seven weeks up until 10 weeks gestation uh, without really any further input of safety data. And, you know, looking and again, if you look at the, the data that's out there, it shows that at about eight weeks, those complication rates start to increase significantly with each subsequent week of pregnancy. And in fact, if you look at mortality rates from abortion in general, we know that beyond eight weeks gestation, the mortality rate for women undergoing abortions increases by 38% for every week beyond eight weeks that a woman is. So this was really significant for them to increase it up to 10 weeks. And not only did they increase the window in which this could be used, increasing, you know, adverse events for women, but they also at the same time said that now the only adverse events that have to be reported to the FDA are deaths from mifepristone. So no longer did people have to report if a woman, you know, showed up in the emergency room for a visit or had to have emergency surgery or had to have a blood transfusion. So not only did we increase the risk to women 
without looking at the available data, but then we also worsened data collection. And so then now we have even less data than we had before. So, um, so that's kind of the, the state that we find ourselves in currently is that it's approved through 10 weeks of gestation. But as you said, there are even major medical organizations um, like the American College of OBGYNs that have advocated for Mifeprex being used beyond that 10-week mark, even into the second trimester, which is extremely dangerous, again, not only for preborn children, but for their mothers as well. So we've seen changes in the accessibility of getting chemical abortion. And also, even at, at one time, it seemed a standard practice for an ultrasound to happen prior to a chemical abortion. And that doesn't seem to be the case uh, so much anymore either. Um, so that's kind of the bad news. And really, we could spend probably several podcasts on the bad news, because I, I know just from other groups that I'm involved in, and in talking about uh, aftercare for women who've had abortions, how in past, it was pretty common to uh, see women who perhaps uh, months, years, many years after an abortion seek some sort of recovery uh, group, support group to walk through uh, the trauma, to walk through their grief. And because of chemical abortion, I know those groups have actually been being contacted by women in the midst of their chemical abortion. They did not realize what uh, many of them are going to experience and the trauma of that. So we won't be able to spend time there today, um, but we know we could. But let's move to the good news. And the good news is really about the, the protocol and the process of abortion pill reversal. So Dr. Bowles, give us some education um, for our listeners on how abortion pill reversal works. What is it and how does it work? All right. Well, it's really a simple concept. And Dr. Francis did a great job explaining how chemical abortion works. Well, the basic medical school classes, the, the courses, the concepts of physiology and pharmacology say that reversing an, um, a chemical abortion by using extra progesterone, it's a concept that makes sense. The, the, the things we learn, the principles we learn with basic pharmacology and basic physiology they, they show that this concept of abortion pill reversal using progesterone to interfere with the progesterone blocker, that it makes sense. So the basic sciences support it. Then there's animal data that supports it. In 1988, um, a Japanese researcher published a study where he had large groups of pregnant rats, two large groups. One group of the rats were given mifepristone. The other group was given mifepristone and then given progesterone. Um, the group that was given mifepristone only, 67% of those rat embryos died. Only 33% of them survived the mifepristone. But in the group that was given progesterone following the mifepristone, 100% of the rat embryos survived. So this was clearly proven using animal data. Then they looked at the tissue, the pathology results, the histology of the tissue under the microscope, and they looked at the uterus and the ovary, the, the uterine and ovarian tissues from both groups of rats. In the group that got the mifepristone, there were characteristic microscopic changes that occurred in the cellular structure of those organs. But the progesterone group 
showed none of those changes. So the progesterone not only protected the embryos, it protected the maternal organs from being changed by the mifeprex. So the animal data is solid uh, in, in proving this concept. Then the abortion industry, which of course wants to um, block any discussion or consideration of abortion pill reversal, um, they like to criticize and say that we don't have any studies that show that it works, that we only have a small series of, of six patients and that's not enough to, to draw any conclusions from, but that's not the truth. Dr. George Delgado put together <clears throat> a review of different ways of attempting to reverse the effects of mifeprex using progesterone. And in his study, they looked at the data from over 750 patients. And that's a lot of patients. Out of those 750 some patients, over 500 of them, we were able to collect enough study, enough data to complete the study with them. So we have a patient population of more than 500 patients who were treated with different forms of progesterone at different doses. And they did it that way to look at what, what would be the best way to administer the progesterone, what's going to give you the best chance of success. Um, the group that used what we now at, a, at Heartbeat call the high-dose oral protocol, the group that used that, 68% of the time, the, the reversal was successful and the unborn child survived and went on to be delivered past the age of viability, um, 68%. Where if you look at historical controls that are, have been published by the abortion industry, if a woman takes mifeprex and takes nothing else, she is only going to have a surviving embryo somewhere between eight and 24% of the time. So you're looking at 8% as the worst case, 24% as the best case versus 68% with progesterone, and that's a huge statistically significant difference. But they still want to deny that it works. And um, an abortion researcher named Daniel Grossman, I think he had a little Freudian slip one day in an interview he was giving with Slate Magazine, and they asked him about reversal. And I'm not quoting him exactly word for word, but this is this is the spirit of what he said, and it's it's pretty close to it's a highly accurate paraphrase, let's say that. He said, we don't want the public to be thinking about abortion regret. We don't want discussions of abortion pill reversal to change the public perception of abortion regret. So what does he mean by that? He doesn't want the public to know that frequently women take that pill and they've swallowed it and it may not have even gone all the way down before they start to regret it. I have talked to women who said that they regretted it immediately and tried to induce vomiting in the parking lot before they left to see if they could get the pill to come back up. Um, it is common. Heartbeat gets 300 calls a month from women who take that pill and then regret it. And more than half of them do go ahead to uh, begin the reversal attempt. So this is a real problem. And we, abortion pill reversal is a real solution for the real problem of 
that women experience when they take the first pill and then they change their mind, but the abortion industry refuses to respect their choice. Uh, that's what abortion pill reversal is about. And that's, that's why it's so satisfying to me because we strike a blow at the abortion industry by saving a baby that they took cash to kill. We improve that woman's future and her, her mental and emotional health and her family's health. And we push back against the lies of the abortion industry, proving them with every successful reversal, proving them to be wrong. So there are plenty of reasons for pro-life providers to uh, want to be involved as reversal providers. That's great. I, I know one of the questions that comes up quite often that we hear, um, and I think women are oftentimes told if they they start chemical abortion, so they take the first pill, they have a change of mind, and you're right, because we do find that those women are contacting us from the parking lot, contacting us within hours after taking the, the first pill. And if they go back to the abortion provider or just talking to someone perhaps in the general public, they're given some information that your baby is going to be born with all kinds of problems, um, deformities. And so once you start this, I, I know that I have heard women say that when they were told once they start chemical abortion, there is no turning back. And turning back would uh, cause them uh, grief with a child who may or may not survive. So could you address that? Because around here, we, we often also say it's just progesterone. Uh, it's a favorite phrase of ours. And so maybe if, if there's a way to connect those two things, we'll let Dr. Bowles do that. And then Dr. Francis, if there's anything else you want to add to that, we'll, we'll bring you in there. It's a common tactic for the abortion provider if the patient does call them back. About half the time, in my experience with patients, about half the time they felt so, um, one word I've heard them use is creeped out by the abortion provider, that they don't even want to call them back. I make it a habit with each reversal patient I talk to, I ask them, did you call your abortion provider back to see if there was anything they could do. And only about half the patients do. And every single one of those patients who did were told, there's nothing that can be done. You just need to finish the process. And if you don't, it's dangerous. And some of them are also told, if your baby survives, it'll be born with birth defects. Well, there are two problems with that. The first one is the assumption that taking the Mifeprex causes birth defects. That's one impression they try to leave them with. You've already taken something that could cause a birth defect if the baby doesn't abort. So you should just finish the process. That's a lie. When Danco Pharmaceuticals submitted its uh, application to the Food and Drug Administration for approval, that was one question the FDA investigators asked. Do does this drug, if the fetus survives, does this drug increase the risk of birth defects? Danco's answer and Danco's data said no. The American College of OBGYN also, in one of its published pieces of literature about this topic, says that there is no risk of birth defects for embryos and fetuses that survive uh, the dosage of mifeprex. So, the data's there, the literature's there that says that's a lie, but they still tell it. Then the other implication is, well, the progesterone's not safe. It may cause a birth defect. Come on. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
if you are a medical provider and you understand physiology, you understand how incredibly laughable that is because the natural progesterone we use is the same progesterone that's produced by the ovary and then by the placenta during pregnancy. So how would the woman's body produce something that will cause birth defects in the child? It doesn't. Furthermore, we have used progesterone for multiple purposes in high-risk pregnancies for more than five decades. Progesterone use in safe progesterone use in high-risk pregnancies has been around longer than Roe versus Wade. It is not problematic. It is not. It's just the supplementation of a natural substance that people need. Just like you give insulin to a diabetic, you're giving them a natural substance. You're giving them insulin that will help keep their sugar normal. The insulin's not going to kill them. The lack of it will. The progesterone's not going to hurt the baby, but the lack of it will. Uh, it's, it's really so simple. And it's just sad that otherwise intelligent people will take the position opposite the truth and stick to it till their dying breath. It's just, it's amazing to me. Wow. Thanks, Dr. Bowles. Dr. Francis, do you want to add to that? And then maybe we'll let you start us off by explaining a little bit about uh, the Krinin study. Um, again, that's something that we'll have to explain in a way that I could understand um, and many of our listeners as well. Sure. Well, you know, I think that that goes along nicely with what Dr. Bowles was just talking about. Um, you know, he did a great job explaining the sort of common sense, like he said, for anybody who's taken biology or a chemistry class and learned about, you know, competitive inhibition and things like that, will understand how this works. It's, it's based in basic scientific principles. Um, but, you know, getting to progesterone safety um, and how we know that it's safe, like he said, we've used it for decades in the practice of OBGYN, um, reproductive endocrinology specialists, so infertility specialists have used it for decades to help support uh, pregnancies, either in women who are pregnant as a result of IVF or in women with recurrent pregnancy loss. And in fact, in um, 2020, there was a study published looking at, um, I believe it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, looking at using natural progesterone in women with a history of recurrent miscarriage and um, showed that in certain women, it is effective and also, I think even more importantly showed that there were no safety concerns with this being used in early pregnancy. In addition to that, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has endorsed the use of natural progesterones in early pregnancy, stating that there's no increased risk to mother or to fetus uh, with natural progesterones. And so that's extremely important. And, and as he said, ACOG acknowledges that, that natural progesterones can be used safely in pregnancy. They also interestingly acknowledge in their practice bulletin on medication abortions, they actually, without meaning to, acknowledge that progesterone is effective in counteracting the effects of mifepristone. So in that document, and it's just hilarious to me that they don't mean to, but they really do. They, they support APR without meaning to. In that, in that uh, document, they say that um, abortion pill reversal is uh, not based in any science and that they don't recommend that that physicians do that for their patients. But then later in that document, in a section talking about contraception at the time of chemical abortions, 
they actually specifically caution against using Depo-Provera at the time of a chemical abortion, which Depo-Provera, it's not a natural progesterone, progesterone, but it is a large dose of a progestin, which is a relative of progesterone. Um, they caution against using that at the same time because it, and I quote, increases the risk of ongoing pregnancy. So they acknowledge that progesterone, even a form like a progestin, that's not going to be as effective as a natural progesterone will, will counteract the effects of Mifeprex. So they acknowledge in their practice bulletin that it works, even though they say that it doesn't. So, um, so there's lots and lots of science to support the use of this. There's lots of science to support that this is safe. However, the Krinan study is kind of the, you know, what I think the abortion industry and, and its allies, uh, hoped was going to be the nail in the coffin for APR. So one of the criticisms that you often hear of APR is that it it's based on, you know, sort of case series. It's not based on a blinded, randomized, controlled trial. And so, you know, because of that, we can't trust any of the data, which there's lots of issues with that. First of all, there's a lot of things we do in medicine that are not based on randomized controlled trials, specifically because it would be unethical to do a randomized controlled trial in that situation. This situation where a woman regrets her abortion and desires to save her child is a situation in which a randomized controlled trial to tell some women, Hey, we have this thing that we know probably works to save your baby. We know you want to save your baby, but we're not going to give it to you because we're going to randomize you to the placebo group. That would not be ethical whatsoever. But Dr. Krinan, who is a well-known abortionist and also, I think it's important to point out, paid by Danco, the company that produces Mifeprex. So he has a huge financial conflict of interest in doing any kind of study um, in this arena. But he uh, designed a study that basically took women who were going to complete their abortions regardless and started them out with mifepristone um, and then followed up with them two weeks later. Um, and at the time they received their mifepristone, they either received progesterone or they received a placebo and then followed up with them two weeks later with the plan being that if they had an ongoing pregnancy two weeks later, then they would complete their abortion surgically. Um, they enrolled a total of 12 women they stopped the trial at that point because of safety concerns. And they say that the safety concerns were, were safety concerns with the abortion pill rescue protocol. However, if you look at the actual data and what happened, it tells the exact opposite story. So there were 10 women that were eligible to be analyzed in the end, five in each group. So five that received progesterone. So that would be the abortion pill rescue group. And then five that received a placebo out of the progesterone group, what they found was that at that two-week mark, four out of five women actually had viable pregnancies still. So it actually showed APR works <laughs> because 80% of the women still had living children two weeks later. Um, the other one, so one out of the five women uh, presented to the emergency room. But what they found when she presented to the emergency room was that she was completing her abortion uh, she completed her abortion in the emergency room, did not require blood transfusion, did not require any further treatment, and she was sent home. However, in the other group, in the placebo group, um, what they found was that there were two women actually, so 40% out of the small group who presented to the emergency room with heavy bleeding, both of whom required emergency surgery in order to stop their bleeding, and um, one of whom required a blood transfusion. So twice as many women in the placebo group um, had emergency room visits, and both of them actually required additional treatment. 
Um, and then three out of, or I'm sorry, two out of the five women in that group, in the placebo group, uh, had ongoing pregnancies at, at two weeks. So in Krynan's study, which claims that APR is dangerous and that it doesn't work, they actually showed that APR does work because twice as many women in the progesterone group had ongoing pregnancies. And they actually showed that it was safer because the women who, pre- who received progesterone had fewer emergency room visits, didn't require blood transfusion and didn't require emergency surgery. So, um, this is a very small study. So you have to be very careful about drawing, you know, far reaching conclusions from the study, but certainly the claims that they make that APR doesn't work and that it's not safe for women are not true whatsoever. And this is the only study, the only one that the abortion industry and its allies have to rely on. I think, um, and Dr. Bowles can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, um, the, that they have to rely on to say that APR doesn't work and that it's unsafe for women, which is what we hear very commonly. So if I were to, um, make some sort of conclusion, I might conclude that this study was so small and shut down because the, uh, results show the effectiveness of abortion pill reversal protocol. Um, that would just be a far reaching, conclusion that one might make. But I, I know, Dr. Bowles, you have you have more to add to this. So please go ahead. Well, uh, I would like to talk about why I think they stopped the study. Mm-hmm. I do not believe they stopped the study because two out of 12 women had to be treated for heavy bleeding. I believe they stopped the study because they showed in the progesterone group a better success rate for reversal than our data has with no complications. And they showed a um, 40% complication rate in the group that got mifepristone but did not take progesterone. I think that's why they stopped it. They were embarrassed at their results and they did not want to continue the study. The other thing to understand about that study is they did a statistical power calculation before the study began and determined that they needed 40 patients. They needed 20 in each group. Uh, So they didn't need a huge number to prove a statistically significant difference if one exists. So in their study, 20 in each group was going to be sufficient to prove the point, but our study with 500 patients proving the point isn't enough. Which is it? I mean, they, they shouldn't get to have it both ways, just like ACOG shouldn't get it both ways. But in one document, like Dr. Francis pointed out, it's as if they're saying, don't you dare give progesterone to a woman to reverse a medication abortion because it's not going to work and there's no data that proves it is. But don't you dare give progesterone for birth control to a woman who just took Mifeprex because it will prevent the baby from dying. And they say both of those things in the same document. I'm like Dr. Francis. When I first read that, I remember exactly where I was, the desk I was sitting at and what I was doing that day, because I read that and I just shouted and started laughing. (laughs) Uh, Like I could not believe the good fortune of coming across this point to be able to use it that they made that's Mm. so ludicrous And it it just shows the unprofessional nature of the American College of OBGYN on the issue of abortion. They've done great work in 
otherwise resident education and continuing medical education and other types of standards for best treatment in every other area of women's health care. But in the area of abortion, they always place abortion ideology ahead of truth and science and women's safety. And that's, that's unforgivable. Mm-hmm. That's very eye-opening. Uh, everything that the two of you have shared, just very eye-opening. We know that our audience is really made up of those who really serve in the pregnancy help community, um, mm-hmm. but they will take this information and they'll move this on to others. And so thinking about healthcare providers who may get hold of this podcast, someone sends it their way, or they're already one of our listeners, um, what is something that you would each share with a healthcare provider that you say, without a doubt, you need to know this about abortion pill reversal? Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go first. Um, you know, I think when we think about, especially for those of us who, uh, perform any kind of surgical procedure as part of our medical practice, but certainly any physician, even if it's someone who's not doing surgery and, you know, maybe just providing medications, things like that, you will know that a basic tenant of medical ethics, a basic tenant of what governs our practice of medicine is the tenant of informed consent. Meaning that when we meet with a patient and we are talking to her about a medication we might be recommending or a treatment course we might recommend or a surgery, anything like that, you don't do anything without giving her fully informed consent. And part of fully informed consent is discussing three things, the risks, benefits, and alternatives of whatever it is that you're recommending to the patient. And I really see, I mean, first of all, we know that the abortion industry does not give women informed, fully informed consent. They don't talk to them about the very real risks that exist with abortion. But in addition to that, I really see abortion pill rescue as a true alternative to a woman completing a chemical abortion. Um, you know, if she finds that she regrets her abortion choice, she has two choices. She can either continue uh, that process or she can choose abortion pill rescue and, and try to save her baby if that's what she so chooses to do. And so this really represents, like I said, an alternative to her completing her medication abortion. And so part of, so any physician, any healthcare provider who is meeting with a patient and discussing this issue really should talk to her about the availability of abortion pill rescue, because like I said, it's an alternative. It's part of that fully informed consent. And so that, I guess that would be the, the thing that I would want to get across the most is this is very reasonable. Even if there is someone listening to this or who gets their hands on this, who, you know, supports a woman's quote unquote right to an abortion, why wouldn't we want women to have all of their choices? That's what I would say to them. This isn't about even necessarily being pro-life or, or you know, not pro-life. Um, although, you know, certainly any of us that are pro-life recognize that this is a life-saving treatment to that pre-born child. And so why wouldn't we want to um, provide that? But if you truly are about women having their choices, and this is what I really don't understand about people trying to deny this option for women is this is a choice that she's making. And, you know, in, in some of my discussions with women who have called in through the network and who I've talked to women who are contemplating maybe doing abortion pill rescue, 
I've had a few conversations with women who, you know, we talk about, here's what the process is going to be. Here's the potential success rate. Um, you know, here's the safety profile, all of that, all of the information. And then ultimately, you know, I think unfortunately, but ultimately they decided not to do abortion pill rescue and they decided to, you know, either not do anything or to complete their abortion. So, you know, women are not coerced when they call into the network, they're not forced into this, but this is simply giving them a choice. Um, and I know, you know, hopefully some of the things that we've talked about today help clear up. There are a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of bad data that's being, you know, shared out there about abortion pill rescue. Um, but there really is good science backing this up. And, and if anybody, um, you know, has further questions at, at Applog, we, we, you know, in conjunction with heartbeat thought, okay, there are a lot of physicians who'd probably get involved with this, but they just are concerned because of things that they're hearing from ACOG or things that they're hearing from their colleagues. And so we want to give them the answers that they need to hopefully help them feel comfortable providing this for women. And so people can go to Applog's website. We have a, a special page now dedicated to abortion pill reversal um, that has, you know, frequently asked questions and a video that will explain the the science behind this and and sort of bust some of those myths that are out there about about abortion pill rescue. So, um, so we're happy to to have that as as you know answers to some of the questions that I know so many people have. Thanks, Dr. Francis. Yeah. And you, Dr. Bowles, what would be your word to the healthcare providers out there? What do they need to know? Well, I would like to echo what Dr. Francis said. You know, we as pro-life OBGYNs, we recognize that there's the life of an unborn human being on the line, and we want to save as many of those as possible. But we also recognize that there's a woman who is at risk for potential complications from the chemical abortion and she is at risk for a lifetime of regret and the consequences that come from that. So we want to respect her choice. If, if she has decided that she made a mistake and she chooses to attempt to reverse that, we're respecting her choice. You know, where are these so-called advocates for choice who you know, deny that there's a child on the line and say it's all about choice? what about the choice to change your mind? You know, they, if you're, even if you're a pro-choice OBGYN, why would you oppose something so solidly represented by the data we've presented uh, and deny your patient the choice to change your mind? Anyone who does that is not really an advocate for choice. And they're not really an advocate for women. They are an advocate for abortion, uh, period. End of story. But uh, to the provider that is interested in doing this, but is reluctant to be because of the publicity, because of the things they've heard about reversals, supposed ineffectiveness and danger. Remember the points that I, that I went through earlier. It's supported by, the concept is supported by the basic sciences of physiology and pharmacology. It is overwhelmingly supported by an enormously good animal data study, the only one that I'm aware of. It is supported by the human data, hundreds of patients in the official study, and it's supported by the human experience. 
So it's supported by all of those things. Uh, it's supported by the safety, what we know to be the safety of progesterone uh, during a pregnancy. So there's, there's really no good reason not to offer this choice to a patient who chooses to change her mind other than your unmitigated support for abortion. That, that's the only real reason not to do it. Um, for the doctor who's afraid of it taking too much time or being too much of a burden, it's really not much more work to do a reversal as a provider than it is to handle a phone call for a prescription refill request from one of your own patients when they call after hours. It's really not much different from that. Uh, so simple and so satisfying to save a life and improve a life. Thank you. That's powerful. Uh, as we close, I do have one more question for each of you. And um, as you, you talk about kind of the human condition and the human story. And so I, I wanted to have our listeners just hear from each of you. If you would just very briefly tell us, I know you probably have many of these, but just tell us one a short story about um, a patient that touched your heart and perhaps changed or enhanced the way you practice medicine. How would you answer that? Just on a personal note for us. Uh, Dr. Francis, we'll let you go first. Okay. Well, you know, I, I could share a reversal success, which is a, which is a great story. And, and she and her child certainly made an impact on my life and, and my practice of medicine. But I think a patient that sticks in my mind that, that sort of tells a broader picture and, and certainly impacted my life and my practice of medicine is, um, actually how I got to be a godmother of a very sweet little girl. Um, and, and her story is, is long, so I'll make it very short, but, um, basically met her mother for the first time, seeing her for her first visit. She'd had all of her other babies with another physician. So this is my very first time meeting her. And she came to see me with an abnormal first trimester ultrasound. Um, something called a cystic hygroma was seen on her baby. And when that scene in the first trimester, that is especially concerning and, um, through testing and things like that, we found out that her baby had Down syndrome. And uh, as she progressed a little bit farther in the pregnancy, we could see that she had a pretty significant congenital heart defect. And then about halfway through her second trimester, the baby developed something called hydrops fetalis, which is um, almost uniformly indicative um, that the baby's not going to survive. Basically, it means that she was in such severe heart failure that she was collecting fluid in all of her body cavities. And so um, my patient was told by the high risk specialist that her baby had less than a 5% chance of survival of the pregnancy itself, um, much less, you know, beyond delivery that there was basically no chance of survival. Um, and so we, it was a, it was a hard process to go through with my patient, but we prayed together at her visits and, and still respected the life of her child. She was offered termination, um, by the high risk, uh, specialist, which she declined, and, um, so, you know, we just followed her just kind of waiting for baby grace was her name, um, to, you know, to pass away, but, but, you know, respecting that life as, as long as she was there with us. And one day, one of our sonographers came into my office with just this look of shock on her face. And, and, and I looked at her and I knew that she'd been ultrasounding my patient. And I said, I said, oh, you know, did grace pass away? And she said, no. And. I said, well, then why do you look like that? And she said, 
because all the fluid is gone. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, the high drops, it's completely gone. It's resolved. And so I looked at her images and sure enough, that was the truth. And, uh, and so from then on, we sent her back to the high risk specialist and, uh, I had the distinct privilege and honor of delivering baby grace at about 34 weeks. She needed to be delivered a little bit early. Um, and she was delivered, came out screaming, um, has had a couple of heart surgeries since then, but now is eight years old and, uh, I am her godmother and she is beautiful and she is the joy of her family. And, you know, how that changed my practice in medicine was that I think it just reiterated to me, which, you know, I think sometimes we as physicians need to be reminded of this that we don't know everything, um, that we base our, our, uh, recommendations oftentimes on statistics, but there are those fighters out there who are going to defy our statistics. And if we just practice medicine in such a way that supports the lives of our mothers and our preborn patients, that we will not go wrong anytime that we do that. And I think sometimes if we are willing to be just a little bit more patient and um, respect both of those lives, however long or short they might be, um, I think we would find more often than we realize that we might be wrong. And, you know, I'm not knocking the medical profession. Obviously I'm part of it. Um, there's a lot we know now that we didn't know 40, 50 years ago, but there's still a lot that we don't know. And, um, and, you know, so I think what that emphasized to me is that if, if we as physicians, as medical professionals respect the dignity of both of our patients, when we're taking care of pregnant women, we will never go wrong with that. What a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Dr. Bowles, we'll close our podcast with you sharing a little bit with us. How do I top that? I know, I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. What what an awesome uh, recounting of, of just a, a miraculous story. Uh, thank you. Um, I'll tell you a story about an APR patient. Uh, since we're talking about that for this podcast, and I had a very vivid reminder of this patient just today. You know how when you look at Facebook, how it pops up and says, you know, here's a memory from a year ago today or three years ago today. Well, three years ago today, I commented about a post I had made a few days prior to that, a post about one of my earliest abortion pill reversals. Um, I had done several reversals, uh, but this particular patient was the first one of the reversals that I had prescribed who also lived close enough to my office where I was practicing at the time to come to me for her obstetric care. So I I prescribed the progesterone. She started it. She had taken the Mifeprex one morning. She started her progesterone that night, and she was able to come to my office the next week for an ultrasound. And uh, beautiful, 11-week baby, perfect heartbeat, no problems, no abnormalities, uh, very, very happy. She was very happy about that. Um, So I took care of her, just routine prenatal care from then on for the rest of the pregnancy. Her earlier deliveries had been by cesarean section, so she was scheduled for a repeat C-section at 39 weeks. In the morning of her section, when I was talking to her before we went to the operating room, I said, 
you know what I do. You know that I'm active on this issue socially, uh, that I uh, do a great deal of work on this issue. Would it be okay with you if I had one of the nurses take a picture in the operating room uh, of us holding up the baby after the baby's delivered? But I would like to be able to have that picture to use. And she said, yes, please go right ahead. She was excited that her baby and her experience could be used to promote the idea of abortion pill reversal. So I posted this great picture uh, with just a simple five or six sentence little paragraph saying what it was. And um, that got shared on Facebook nearly 10,000 times, uh, nearly 10,000 comments and reactions to it. And the overwhelming majority of them were positive. There, there were a few negative, you know, ignorant comments. Oh, you have no business taking care of women. Why don't you go find the nearest tall cliff and jump off and do the world a favor? Um, oh, that's a lie. That's not true. I mean, there were three. I think I remember three comments that were like that. The overwhelming majority were people that were really thrilled to see that and really astonished to know that it was possible, uh, contrary to what the abortion industry says. And, you know, that's what the abortion industry really doesn't want. They don't want pictures of happy babies and happy families uh, showing that what abortion does is kill that child when it's just smaller and invisible. They don't want people seeing that it's much more than a clump of cells or a blob of tissue. Uh, they don't want people to see that women do regret the choice to abort. Uh, not always, but often enough that it's a problem. And um, so that that picture I've used many times in many different presentations now uh, in the three years since then. And um, I just it, I, I enjoy that memory a lot. I've seen that photo. It's a beautiful photo. I was one of the 10,000 or so likes yeah. on that. So thank you for that. Um, we'll, we'll close and I'll turn things over to Christine, but um, allow me really to thank you both for being willing to do the abortion pill reversal, to mm -hmm. use the protocol and to uh, be part of the abortion pill rescue network um, and for your leadership roles with Applog and with Heartbeat International. Um, I, I can't express our appreciation for you enough. Uh, you truly are answers to prayer. And, um, and we just know that this podcast is gonna really inform and help a lot of people. So with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to you, Christine. Thanks, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast. Once again, our sponsor is the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. So if you're interested in learning more, visit aprnworldwide.com. And if you haven't done so already, then I want to encourage you to go to heartbeatinternational.org slash podcast and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks and have a great and blessed rest of your day.